Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to the Enbridge Inc. First Quarter 2020 Financial Results Conference Call. My name is Patrice and I'll be your operator for today's call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session for the investment community. During the question and answer session, if you have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I will now turn the call over to Jonathan Morgan. Vice President, Investor Relations. Jonathan, you may begin. Thank you, Patrice. Good morning and welcome to the Enbridge Inc. earnings call for the first quarter 2020. I hope you're all doing healthy and well. Joining me this morning are Al Monaco, President and Chief Executive Officer, Colin Grunding, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, Vern Yu, Executive Vice President, Liquids Pipelines, Bill Yardley, Executive Vice President, Gas Transmission and Midstream. As per usual, this call is webcast, and I encourage those listening on the phone to follow along with the supporting slides. A replay of the call will be available today, and a transcript will be posted to the website shortly after. In terms of Q&A, we'll prioritize calls from the investment community, and if you're a member of the media, please direct your questions to our communications team, who will be happy to respond immediately. Generally, we target to keep these calls to roughly one hour. However, we recognize there's a lot of information to cover during these unprecedented times, so we'll be a little more flexible this morning. That said, in order to answer as many questions as possible, please try to limit your questions to one plus a follow-up. As always, our investor relations team is available for your detailed follow-up questions afterwards. On slide two, I'll remind you that we will be referring to forward-looking information on today's call. By its nature, this information contains forecast assumptions and expectations about future outcomes, which are subject to the risks and uncertainties outlined here and discussed more fully in our public disclosure documents. We'll also be referring to the non-GAAP measures summarized below. With that, I'll turn it over to Al Monaco. Okay, thanks, Jonathan. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to open this up with a few comments on the COVID crisis and how we're approaching it. Everybody is searching for analogs to figure out where society, the economy, and capital markets are headed. The reality is we've never lived through something like this, and certainly not in energy, at least in my 35-plus years in the industry. COVID has threatened millions of people, and it's hit fast and wide. One of my best days recently was the news that most of our few staff impacted by COVID were fully recovered. We all recognize that healthcare workers and emergency responders are the heroes. In the same way, I'm extremely proud of how our own front lines have responded. The women and men of Enbridge who've kept our systems running normally in the face of their own anxieties. That's especially true for our people who remain on the job site, like in control centers, operations, field staff, and support functions. I want to thank our people for their sheer dedication they've shown to their work, our customers, and to the people that consume energy every day. In terms of our response, we implemented our business continuity plans very early on with the priority of protecting our people. 
For critical functions, we've put in additional safety protocols to maintain full service. On our approach to managing this downturn, our resilient business model and the actions we took over the last three years put us in strong position coming into the year. That's going to allow us to weather this storm as the vast majority of our EBITDA is unaffected, and that's why we're maintaining our guidance, and we're stressing that outlook with various scenarios. Even though we're resilient, we're staying ahead of the game and taking action to make sure we stay that way. What's guiding us through this period are three cornerstones. The health and safety of our people and reliability of our systems, that's number one. Maintaining a strong balance sheet with ample liquidity and hitting our financial targets to support our conservative payout ratio and further growth. We're starting to see more positive economic signs, but none of us for sure has a crystal ball on this in terms of the pace of the recovery, so we're watching the signposts very closely. With that context, I'm going to start with Q1 highlights and explain what exactly we mean by resiliency. Then I'll cover how we see the North American crude oil fundamentals and our liquids mainline outlook. Colin's going to review the Q1 results, the financial position, and the 2020 outlook. And as Jonathan said, we'll be a bit longer to get through our remarks today uh, because there's a lot to cover. So moving to the Q1 highlights on slide four. So the first quarter seems a long time ago now, and we're all focused on the rest of the year, but there are a few things that are relevant to that. Operationally, our businesses ran very well. Distributable cash flow was strong and exceeded our Q1 budget. While COVID was a focus, we also advanced the priorities we laid out for you at Enbridge Day. Continuing with disciplined capital allocation, we sold $400 million in assets at very good valuations. This includes today's announcement that we're selling 49% of our equity interest in three French offshore wind projects to our financial partner. More on that later. The Texas Eastern Rate uh, Settlement took effect, and we made headway on Line 3 permitting in Minnesota. To prepare for any economic scenario and make sure we stay ahead of the game, we're taking further bolstering actions. We're reducing 2020 costs by $300 million. That includes salary rollbacks across the organization, including myself, senior management, and the board. And we've already boosted excess liquidity by $5 billion to $14 billion to provide even more buffer in case debt capital markets shut down for an extended period. And we've refined our 2020 capital execution schedules in light of COVID. We expect about $1 billion of capital will be naturally deferred to next year without changing schedules in terms of our EBITDA uh, uptick. First, EBITDA on the next slide now, on five here, uh, EBITDA came in at $3.8 billion and DCF at $2.7 billion or $1.34 a share. That's a very good result, especially given the weather drag in the utility and narrow basis differentials in energy services relative to last year. We did very well this quarter in both of our core pipeline businesses. Liquids had record mainline volumes and higher throughput on our Gulf Coast access pipes, and gas transmission saw higher revenue from the new TETCO rates. Because of that, DCF per share was about five cents higher than budget, which is a plus in terms of how we're looking at the full year. 
Colin will get to the outlook, including the various puts and takes we see for 2020. But bottom line, as I mentioned, is that we expect to be within the guidance range of 450 to 480 of DCF per share for the year. That expectation stems from the resiliency of our business I referred to. So let me speak briefly to that on slide six. This group would have seen this slide before, which illustrates our low-risk uh, pipeline utility model, but we've expanded it a bit here to show the various commercial structures and put our liquids mainline in the bigger picture Enbridge context. Starting from the top left box here and going counterclockwise, we have over 40 different sources of EBITDA, diversified by business line, commodity, size, and geography. The common thread is that virtually all of our cash flows are driven by market pull with direct connections to end-use markets. 95% of our customers are investment grade with strong balance sheets, and you've seen our list before. We've got good uh, conservative financial policies reflecting the stability and predictability of our cash flow and low business risk. On the top right, 98% of our EBITDA is underpinned by cost of service, long-term taker pays, or similar structures. We include the mainline CTS agreement in this category, and here's why. CTS has been in place for nine years now and has worked extremely well for customers, us, uh, and others through commodity and economic downturns. We're protected from any normal volume disruption because of the very strong supply fundamentals and the main line's competitive position. Another factor, though, is contracted taker pays, both upstream and downstream, that effectively push and pull volume through the main line. And ultimately, if needed, we have cost of service backstop, but our customers haven't wanted us to go in that direction. I'm going to expand on those issues in a few minutes when we discuss the mainline outlook and contracting. But first, let me speak to the resiliency of the other parts of our business on slide seven to start. Almost 30% of our EBITDA comes from gas transmission. These pipes connect directly to the largest end-use markets you see on the map here. We love this business because it's utility-like. Virtually all of our cash flows come from reservation-based revenue contracts, and over 90% of our customers are investment-grade, mostly utilities. A great example of the predictability of the business is that we just recontracted 99% of available Texas Eastern capacity for term. Over the balance of this year, we don't expect much impact from COVID on this business. Earlier this week, we had an incident on Texas Eastern, but thankfully nobody was injured. The line has been shut down and we're working to assess the cause. We'll keep you posted on that one as we find out more. Another slice of the pie and absolutely great and underappreciated business in our view is the gas distribution utility, one of North America's largest and fastest growing. This is now on slide eight. Enbridge Gas makes up 13% of our EBITDA and it serves a market of about 14 million. It's essentially regulated cost of service, but we're currently operating under incentive framework. We're earning a very solid ROE due to synergy capture from the amalgamation of our two utilities. The majority of our load here is residential, plus we have long-term contracts underpinning industrial volume. Again, we don't expect to see much impact from COVID, 
and the utility should perform in line with our expectations, weather adjusted. Moving to slide nine in our renewable power business, which generates about 5% of our consolidated EBITDA. This business is built on the same type of commercial pinning, underpinning I just went through. Projects are backed by long-term PPAs, which provide guaranteed offtake and pricing, and we have strong investment-grade customers there as well. We remain on track to meet our budget this year. We also have a good European growth hopper, supported by excellent fundamentals and well-developed supply chains now in this business. We now have three large offshore wind farms in operation and several in development, and bringing in the financial investor I mentioned on the three French offshore projects boosts our return here nicely and minimizes our capital outlay. Now, moving to liquids pipelines on slide 10. Nobody argues that we have North America's premier liquids pipeline system. It gives customers a full-path solution from Western Canada to key refining markets in the Midwest, the Gulf, and Eastern Canada. Roughly 90% of the revenues come from refiners and integrated producers that rely on our system for feedstock. Importantly, the main line is flanked on the upstream end by long-term contracted pipes and on the downstream end with our contracted market access pipes. The contracted lines give a solid cash flow on their own, but those contracts essentially push and pull volumes through the main line. Let me now shift to the outlook for crude oil on slide 11. Obviously, we're living through an unprecedented level of demand disruption. It's being driven by a severe pullback in product consumption from the lockdown, virtually no air travel, significantly reduced miles driven, and negative economic growth. As you can see on the slide here, diesel has actually fared slightly better as large transport vehicles, rail, and shipping are still moving, which is why heavy and medium crude demand has held up better than light. The chart shows 2020 North American crude demand pre- and post-COVID. The trough that you see in Q2 is expected to be roughly 6 million barrels per day off, with April and May being the worst, and then recovering gradually. This return assumes that various measures put in place are lifted over the balance of the year, and a staged reopening of retail and services in Q2, lifting border restrictions by the fall and travel restrictions by year end. That's what goes into those numbers that you see. Given the magnitude of the demand hit and storage levels getting close to full, producers, as you all know, have cut capital and are shutting in barrels to balance the market. And after accounting for storage build and exports, the forecast we have is about three to four million barrels per day of shut-ins across North America actually happened a little bit faster than we had anticipated. Storage will undoubtedly take time to be worked down, but even though that provides steady feed for pipelines, it'll continue to put pressure on oil prices through 2020. So in this uh, outlook, production lags recovery in demand perhaps into 2021 before it's restored to previous levels. At least that's our view. Slide 12 shows how we see this impacting our core markets. Overall, refinery utilization is down sharply, as you know, by about 30 to 50% since January. But this is not a homogenous refinery market. 
If you look at the core markets we serve in the Midwest, Eastern Canada, and the U.S. Gulf, mainline deliveries, these are the purple squares that you see here, have held up better than overall refinery demand. In April, the Chicago area and Minnesota refineries were still running near their normal heavy crude slate, or about 90% of their normal mainline take. The reason for that is those customers run highly competitive and complex refineries. So we showed you here the Nelson Index, uh, and in this case, a higher number is better. Same story in PAD2. That's an export region, of course, so the Nelson Index compares favorably to global refiners. This competitiveness that we're talking about here comes from the scale, coking capability, and reliable access to heavy crude supply, which drives better margins. And it means that we're more resilient, they're more resilient to the downturn and first to recover when demand picks up. The reason I'm talking about all of this now is to illustrate the criticality of our main line and the market access pipes into those two critical regions. So the next slide proves that out and shows why our main line has always been heavily utilized in virtually all market conditions. Throughput increased from 1.5 to 2.85 million barrels over the last decade through low-cost expansions and optimizations. You've tracked those through the years. And for the last six years, we've increased capacity and maximized utilization. Even in the 2009 financial crisis, and the 2015 commodity downturn. In fact, we've had to turn away volumes, particularly heavy barrels, with 40 to 50% apportionment in the last three years. Again, that's because we delivered to the best markets and were directly tied to the strongest refineries. In the case of our PAD2 in Ontario markets, they also lack sufficient storage directly in the region and depend on the main line to deliver feedstock in all market cycles just in time. But the uniqueness and depth of this downturn means everybody's affected. So let's get to the mainline outlook on slide 14. Obviously, Western Canadian producers have been hit hard. Our estimate is that one to one and a half million barrels of production comes off in Q2. April was about one million, as you can see here, followed by gradual recovery. How that reduction, though, gets spread out depends on a number of things. Rail usually comes off first and fast, given a higher cost. Then local refinery demand is impacted, and then ex-Alberta pipes. As the largest pipeline out of the basin, not much of a surprise we're affected with this scale of demand disruption. In April, the main line ran at about 2,450,000 uh, barrels on average, so we absorbed about 400,000 of the estimated 1.1 of shut-in I talked about relative to our Q1 average throughput. Based on what we see today, we're expecting the average Q2 mainline impact to be in the range of four to 600,000 barrels per day, with the gap to normal volumes tapering as we move through the year. Along with the rest of the year shown here, this outlook translates to throughput, about 300,000 barrels per day lower than Q1 on average for the next nine months. At a high level, 300,000 barrels per day of volume for the next nine months works out to about 2% of consolidated EBITDA. And Colin will go through more of this uh, in a few minutes. 
Given the strength of the mainline position and the refinery pull once demand picks up, we'd expect volumes to return to previous levels. All that to illustrate the diversification and strength across the business, including other parts of liquids, makes the impact to the mainline manageable. Let's now move to another subject of interest, which is mainline contract offering on the next slide. We filed our contracting application late last year, including letters of strong support from shippers who make up about 75% of throughput. Based on very recent customer soundings, these shippers remain supportive and will participate in the hearing. That's important because after two years of negotiation, those shippers are essentially saying that the commercial deal we struck, including tolls, works for them and they want to commit volumes in an open season. It wasn't easy getting there at all, but we landed on a good balance, and the deal benefits everybody, producers, integrated companies, and refiners. In the case of refiners and integrated producers, contracting gives them access to reliable feedstock at stable and competitive tolls. Producers get guaranteed access to our system, so while many haven't historically been shippers, the offering allows them to balance the playing field with refiners, which is usually the uh, issue that we hear about. And by the way, they'd be securing access to the most competitive refining market in North America. So we believe we will receive significant and sufficient commitments to contract the mainline for three reasons. The strength of PAD2 and PAD3 refiners and our physical connection to those markets, the competitiveness of our toll, and the fact that shippers representing about 75 of, our, of current throughput support the offering. To illustrate that a bit further on slide 16, in total, we have 3.1 million barrels of volume being pulled by premium markets. We're directly connected to about 1.9 million of PAD2 in Ontario demand, and nearly all of this is heavy refining capability. These refiners rely on our system and have limited alternatives, so they're keen to lock down access to Canadian heavy barrels. We also have a million barrels per day of downstream take-or-pay contracts that draw barrels down the main line through to Quebec, Patoka, Cushing, and full path to the Gulf Coast. The Gulf is hungry for Canadian heavy as Venezuela and Mexico volumes are in decline. So we've got an opportunity here over the next decade for Canada to gain market share. Slide 17 shows the status of the regulatory process and the milestones. In late February, the CER issued the process for participation in the hearing and broadly defined the scope of it. This would normally have been followed by a hearing order and timeline, but the CER is addressing submissions. We filed a response to those submissions on May 1, and we expect a decision sometime in May. I'd encourage you to read that filing, and hopefully we'll see a clear timeline soon so we can get the process moving again. Switching gears now, but still with liquids now, to the progress on the, main, on the Minnesota permitting and regulatory process for line three. This is on slide 18. This is our usual update on the two tracks. A couple of uh, more items checked off, as you can see here, since Q1. On the regulatory track, last Friday, the PUC issued its official orders confirming the recertifications of the EIS Certificate of Need and Route Permit. This took a bit longer than expected, but it is a good outcome. On permitting in late February, the 
Pollution Control Agency issued the draft 401 and closed their public comment period in April. The draft permit was comprehensive and concluded that our construction plans meets its standards, so that's important too. They're now considering the public comments before making a certification decision. The DNR and Army Corps are making progress and the Corps concluded their supplemental public comment period. Once these agencies are done their process, the PUC will be in position to issue an authorization to construct. And we've said this before, but once uh, we have better clarity on the final timing of permits, we'll be able to provide an ISD estimate. And again, uh, once we land on the permits, we've said construction should take between six to nine months. My final comment on the business update is to summarize the priorities. This is now on slide 19. Since the outset of COVID and related oil price shock about eight weeks ago, we've scrubbed the entire business to make sure we stay strong and prepared for an extended shutdown if that happens. The priorities we outlined at Enbridge Day are the same, but we're also taking some near-term actions. The first, as I mentioned, is to protect the health and safety of our people and the operational liability of our assets so we keep running well, and that's in very good shape. We're reducing costs by $300 million. We've increased excess liquidity to $14 billion, and because of some slowdowns related to COVID, about $1 billion of capital spend will be deferred into the next year. These actions, along with our low-risk approach to the business, will make us even more resilient. So now over to Colin for the financial review. Thanks, Al, and good morning, everyone. I'll start off with our financial results, discuss our financial position, including bolstering actions, and then finish with our outlook. Peeking up on slide 20, our financial results came in better than expected. The results highlight the resiliency and diversity of our business. I'll run through the results in an abbreviated manner. Liquids pipelines had a very strong first quarter. Adjusted EBITDA increased $190 million. The mainline system was once again full and oversubscribed, delivering an average of 2.84 million barrels per day, reflecting the capacity optimization work uh, conducted in 2019, in which we talked a lot about last year. We also benefited from a full quarter of the 20 cent uh, tariff surcharge from the Line 3 Canadian segment, which entered service in December. And as well, the Gulf Coast Midcon systems and the Bakken system all had another strong quarter as well, continuing the trends uh, over the uh, sequential quarters. In gas transmission, EBITDA was up around $60 million. Most of this is from incremental revenues on Texas Eastern from its recent rate settlement effective June of last year. The settlement provides approximately Canadian $120 million of annualized EBITDA uptick to us which is a little better than we previously guided. Gas distribution EBITDA was down 84 million compared to last year. This is largely a function of warmer weather this year and, and colder than uh, usual weather last year. Further, we continue to grow the utility rate base through customer growth in the area of 40 to 50,000 new customers per year, and we're achieving our target synergies from the amalgamation. Our power business was down slightly for the quarter, EBITDA was positively impacted by our German offshore wind farm being placed into service late last year and its adjacent expansion placed into service in January. However, these contributions were offset by lower EBITDA at Arcadian wind farms due to less favorable wind resources. 
Energy services was down $189 million from the first quarter of last year. As we mentioned before, Q1 of last year was exceptionally strong, whereas the small loss we're seeing in the first quarter of this year reflects narrower location differentials and limited storage opportunities that didn't fully cover some of the facility demand charges. So that's why this quarter's contribution is slightly negative. Finally, eliminations and other was 25 million favorable compared to the first quarter of last year. This is primarily due to higher realized foreign exchange hedge settlements, as well as the timing of ONA cost recoveries from the business. Moving on to slide 21, uh, DCF for the first quarter was $1.34 per share compared with $1.37 uh, last year. As we just discussed, EBITDA is fairly consistent quarter over quarter. As you look through the rest of these drivers, they can uh, consist of a number of smaller puts and takes. Uh, collectively, financing costs, maintenance costs, and taxes are trending as we have been expecting. Just some timing differences uh, showing up during the quarter. So in summary, we're ahead of where we expect it to be at this point in the year. I'll now move on to slide 22 and discuss our secured growth portfolio. Executing on our secured growth program remains a priority. This now $10 billion portfolio of high-quality projects is well-diversified, commercially down the fairway, and generates strong returns. Of the $10 billion capital program overall, and I think some overlook this, about $4.5 billion is spent already or will be project financed, leaving a very manageable $5.5 billion to spend, and we've got ample capacity to fund this within our equity self-funding model. Turning to execution, we've put health protocols in place in the field, and execution of the program overall is continuing to progress well. However, we expect COVID and a regulatory slowdown to delay plan spending in a few select areas by about a billion dollars in 2020. Importantly, there are no cancellations in this list. It's really more so a shift by weeks or months of, of spend. For example, uh, for, for COVID-related matters, a deferral of our utility customer ads until next year due to temporary housing construction uh, pause in the GTA. Um, in the permitting category, we, we were seeing delays on Penn East, and as we discussed, we received our Line 3 U.S. Minnesota PUC written order, but it was delayed a little bit, so we could see spending shift by six weeks or so as we refine our construction plans. And as a reminder, we conservatively planned in 2020 the in, substantially the entire rest of, of the Line 3 U.S. spend of $2 billion. So consider this uh, about, a, about a $300 million uh, refinement down to 1.7 for Line 3 U.S., for example. Importantly, we don't anticipate any material impact to in-service states given the flexibility and contingency built into our project plans and prior guidance. Once in service, the secured growth will add an incremental $2.5 billion of highly reliable cash flows and advance our strategic priorities. So execution pace is obviously still our objective. On to slide 23. We came into 2020 with the balance sheet in great shape and ample liquidity to fund our growth program. In Q1, we've taken additional actions to further bolster excess liquidity. We've proactively issued $4 billion of term debt 
than attractive rates through April of this year, including an issuance from our A-rated utility, which was the second, <clears throat> excuse me, or third issuer post-COVID, which helped to thaw the Canadian debt capital markets. We also added $3 billion of committed credit facilities from our large banking group in early April. Now, after considering Q1 maturities and capital spending, our available liquidity now stands at about $14 billion. This liquidity gives us plenty of access to funds all the way through 2021 without tap tapping the uh, debt capital markets. And remember, we're in equity self-funding mode too, so our equity component is being funded internally. In terms of balance sheet metrics, for the full year, we continue to expect debt to EBITDA to be well within our four and a half to five times target range. Turning to slide 24, we've sold another 400 million of assets this year as we continue to recycle or high grade our capital. This includes the sale of the Montana Alberta tie line and the Ozark gas system, which combined total about a quarter of a billion dollars. Neither of these assets were core to our strategy, but were attractive to others, so we fetched good value again. We've also announced a further step in our partnership with CPPIB, whereby they've purchased a 49% interest in our 50% share of three offshore wind French projects, which are in development. The proceeds represent a promote and their share of expenditures incurred to date. And then they'll contribute proportion, proportionate capital going forward as we develop these projects with our other local partner EDF. To be clear, we still like these assets and this business. This transaction will boost our return, syndicate our development risk, and expand our partnership with CPPIB, who are also keen to grow this business. Together, these three asset sales reflect our continued focus on capital allocation discipline and further reinforce our financial flexibility. Let's move to slide 25 now, where I'll highlight another key component of our financial strength, namely our customer base, which is 95% investment grade. Individually, as you can see, each business is very strong with over 95% investment grade customers, respectively. But our best credit assurance is that we deliver to end-use markets, as mentioned, where our last mile of transport is typically scarce and valuable to whomever holds it. Our customers are generally comprised of utilities, refiners, integrated companies, and our own utilities end-users. One thematic credit, credit area that we are monitoring closely is some of the gas producing community who ship on our interstate interprovincial systems. As mentioned, we carry very good collateral. However, if more drastic action was required, we expect we could remarket our long haul capacity with others at or near existing rates. As a reminder, these are not gathering lines. Those have been divested. On the whole, we believe this customer credit strength differentiates us from the peer group and ensures we're financially resilient. Turning to slide 26, our rating agencies value our financial strength and resiliency too. All of the agencies assess our business risk as either A or excellent, which is among the best in our sector and reflective of our low risk pipeline utility model. Let me spend a minute on this as it's an important input into ratings. Our diversity, scale, competitive position, commercial model, and simplified structure all matter a lot in this environment and in this risk determination. They're all things that are dear to us and central how we run the business. Some forget we have a big utility in the portfolio, an A-rated utility, which can be forgettable 
it is unique in our midstream space. And our other operating companies are similarly well-rated. Texas Eastern, for example, was recently upgraded by one of the agencies to A credit uh, last month. We have actively strengthened our financial credit metrics, too, and believe they firmly support strong investment grade ratings at the triple B plus level. We continue to be in regular contact with each agency providing ongoing business updates, and based on our discussions, we have no reason to believe that their assessments have changed either. In fact, Fitch just reaffirmed Enbridge's triple B plus credit rating in mid-April. On to slide 27. In addition to bolstering our financial strength and liquidity, we're reducing costs by $300 million for the remainder of 2020. We believe it's prudent to do so under the circumstances with the unique volume situation and given uncertain industry times. We've combed through the business over the last eight weeks, looked at everything, and identified several actionable areas of focus for cost reduction, as you can see on the slide. These include reductions to outside services and supply chain costs, company-wide salary reductions, and finally, a voluntary workforce reduction program. Combined, our approach to operating cost actions have been carefully targeted. We aren't intending on eliminating jobs on an involuntary basis in this environment, and the salary reductions are a shared communal lift, so to speak. Our team is up for it, and we're aligned with customers and investors, and moreover, we'll be even more resilient over the long term as many of these costs actions sustain. Moving now to slide 28, where I'll bring it together with some of the financial sensitivities that have informed our 2020 outlook. Let's begin on the left, where you'll see we've provided approximate EBITDA impacts for various mainline volume scenarios. We provided you a few here to help translate barrels to dollars. As discussed earlier, we currently expect as much as roughly 300,000 barrels per day on average of lower throughput on the mainline over the last three quarters of this year. This reflects a trough in the second quarter and a recovery over the balance of the year. This translates into a reduction to our 2020 EBITDA of about $300 million, or about 2% of our consolidated EBITDA. While that is our expectation, we've further stress-tested the business, given uncertainties, and there's a cushion to handle a further 200,000 barrels per day of volume loss on average for the balance of the year, and still maintain guidance. For example, at 500,000 barrels per day under the stress test, this is roughly 3.5% of consolidated EBITDA. In terms of tailwind sensitivities, we're benefiting from a stronger U.S. dollar foreign exchange rate on our considerable U.S. dollar EBITDA, which even after our hedging program could yield as much as $0.10 cents per share at current exchange rates for the remainder of the year. Lower interest rates will help, too, on both our new issuances and our floating rate exposure. For example, we're setting uh, rate resets on our preferred shares, uh, historically attractive coupons in the 3% even uh, territory. Also, our strong first quarter exceeded our plan, providing an additional $0.05 cent running start, and cost management actions provide approximately $0.15 cents per share of, of, of bolstering support. So let's move to slide 29, what this all, see what this all means for our 2020 DCF for share guidance. Combined, our tailwinds and bolstering actions are expected to largely, if not fully, offset our headwinds. To recap, there are some strong tailwinds for the remainder of the year. Our first quarter, Texas Eastern, the announced cost reductions, stronger U.S. dollar and lower interest rates. On the headwind side, a small impact from our commodity-sensitive businesses, Oxable, energy services, and DCP uh, distribution reduction. But these businesses 
at fully budgeted levels combined are less than 2% of EBITDA. For the main line, we're allowing conservatively for that bigger up to 500,000 barrels per day sensitivity. So if the pace of recovery is slower than we are currently forecasting, we should have some room to absorb that within guidance. So stepping back, looking at things today, when you add it all up, we remain very confident that we'll generate DCF within our original guidance range of 450 to 480 per share. I'll back over to you to wrap up. Okay. Thank you, Colin. So what is in, in the face of uh, probably the worst economic and energy uh, downturn in history, our resilience has once again protected us. The diversification of assets, cash flows, and, and commercial underpinnings allow us to weather this storm well. But we haven't just been standing around watching this. We've been taking action to preserve our flexibility no matter how long the downturn lasts. Given the strength and stability of our business and the factors that Colin just reviewed, we are maintaining that DCF guidance range of 450 to 480. Finally, we are not losing sight of the future either. We remain very focused on executing our secure capital program that will drive near-term and medium-term growth in EBITDA and a growing dividend. So we're now into the Q&A, uh, just given we're not all in the same location here, uh, and to keep things moving, I'll do some handoffs uh, where needed on the Q&A. So on to that section, please. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you are using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset before pressing the numbers. Once again, if you have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. Rob Hope from Scotiabank is online with a question. Uh, morning, everyone. Um, first question is just on uh, the move of capital from 2020 into 2021 for line three. I uh, just want to get a sense, is this being driven by a view that permitting is going to take longer in a COVID-19 world, or is it that uh, uh, you're baking in some additional contingency uh, on the construction side there? Yeah, hey, good morning, Rob. It's, it's Colin. Yeah, it's, um, it's fairly mechanical. So uh, we favorably received the, the Minnesota PUC written order here um, last week, although it, it took a little bit longer. So as you recall, we had uh, budgeted and guided for the full spend during this year on what I'll call the, the best plausible timeline and recognizing that uh, you know, six-week delay, if you like, in the uh, in the order. We're just basically moving that 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 six-week spend from 20 into tw into 21 mechanically. All right, that's so it's about 300 300 million, yeah. All right, and then when we take a look at the 300 million dollars of cost savings, were any of those realized in Q1? And do you have a sense of how much could be also? Uh, uh, being able to be sustained into 2021? Yeah, and the first part of the question, uh, zero basically in Q1. Um, these these programs are uh, all coming into effect here uh, immediately. Um, you know, I, on the sustaining question, uh, I think a good part of it could sustain um, 
you know, we'll have to see on some of it. But uh, I, I would ballpark it at about, you know, two-thirds at this time. All right. That's helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Patrick Kinney from National Bank Financial is online with a question. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Um, just with respect to the, the Army Corps permits still required for Line 3, um, and I guess the Line 5 tunnel as well, any concerns on being able to obtain these permits, just given the recent decision in Montana on uh, Keystone? Just wondering you know, if you see any negative read-through there for your approvals. Uh, I'll hand that one to Vern. Okay, thanks. Uh, we don't see any material impact on the nationwide, based on this decision on the nationwide 12 permit. Uh, each an each project has different uh, permitting um, requirements by the Corps, so the Corps can either choose to use a local permit or a nationwide permit. Uh, for the vast majority of everything that we're doing, we're, we're all under local permits, so this uh, decision from the Montana court doesn't impact schedule. Okay, great. Um, and then just looking at uh, the mainline volumes here, I appreciate the, the detailed quarterly outlook here. Um, just wondering if you could provide an update on what the split is between lights and heavies moving down the system and you know how you might be able to optimize volumes through any blending opportunities um, given the current space right now? Um, I think uh, we are, um, as, as we always are, on a proportionate basis moving more heavy than light, and we expect that to continue over time. Um, and as as refinery demand picks up in the U.S. Midwest and elsewhere on our system, we expect that the demand for heavy will pick up first. So there are some opportunities for us to move more medium-grade crudes by blending lights and, and heavies uh, as the economy recovers if we see a slower pickup in lights. So that is uh, a slight benefit for us as we move forward. I think, uh, Pat, if you just look at the um, crack spreads over the last uh, month or two here, to go to Vern's point, uh, you know, the heavies have held up pretty good, and so that's why we were saying earlier on that uh, when things return, uh, those should even be in better position. So that's how we look at them. And on this recent initiative to store barrels down the main line, any other near-term opportunities for downstream storage? Um, or perhaps if, if storage congestion does last into 2021 after the old Line 3 is uh, decommissioned, um, how, how are you thinking about uh, optimizing storage um, later into 2021? Maybe I'll go first on that, Rob, or, or sorry, Pat. Um, you know, we've, we've got basically two segments of storage in the business. Uh, it's a fairly large storage position overall, but the majority of it relates to operational storage that we need to manage the main line, and I think we're in very good shape there, and it's critical that we maintain that flexibility and that operational storage. On the, the other parts of it, though, we do have, um, let's call it commercial storage uh, within the energy services business. Uh, a good chunk of that, though, is contracted for term uh, at, at fixed fees. 
but there are parts of it, though, that uh, we do have uh, some opportunity to gain from the, you know, from the contango that you're seeing right now, and, and we'll see what happens this quarter on that. We should we should do okay, I think. But uh, you know, in the bigger picture of Enbridge, of course, it's it's uh, you know not a huge business. But uh, yes, there are some opportunities that we're trying to capture in energy services. Okay, that's great. I'll jump back in the queue. Thanks. Okay, thanks, Matt. Robert Kwan with RBC Capital Markets is online for a question. Great. Good morning. Um, maybe just to start on the main line, um, just wondering if you could talk about what the current flows and what the main nominations are, but just even higher level as you think about contracting. Have you reconfirmed um, with the 13 shippers that submitted the letter of support that they are still absolutely on board and specifically um, as well that, that there is the potential, as they initially stated, to take even more volume than, than they're currently shipping? Go ahead, uh, Bern. You want to take the first shot at that? Okay, sure. Uh, hi, Robert. Um, with respect to May volumes, uh, I think we we don't uh, generally talk about what we're seeing intra-month just because of commercial and market sensitivities. But I, I think it's fair to say that we're you're seeing refinery utilization tracking upwards. Uh, as we've progressed through this uh, through April and into May, uh, with respect to mainline contracting on our 13 shippers, we have absolutely reconfirmed with them uh, that they are still highly interested in mainline contracting. In fact, uh, all of them have reconfirmed, and most of them did provide uh, commentary to the CER on April 24th to that effect. Uh, saying that they would like the um, mainline contracting hearing process to continue and, and pick up its pace. Uh, I think your your second part to that question was uh, there are a number of uh, those shippers who are interested in even more space than they're currently shipping just because of uh, volume ramp-ups or are changing refinery configurations. And Vern, they've reconfirmed that that they're still interested based on what they said in the original uh, letters of support in terms of more than, than what they're shipping? Um, uh, yes. Uh, it'll vary customer by customer, but the support and the levels are very strong. Um, great. If I can just finish with a question on the guidance. Um, I guess in typical Enbridge form, you've got the arrows. Um, both tailwinds and headwinds are about the same. So overall, kind of still tracking roughly to the midpoint of guidance and, and at a higher level, what's the biggest risk or uncertainty in your view? Is it really mainline volumes or is there something else? Hey, Robert. Yeah, it's Colin. So, uh, yeah, there is some artistic uh, depiction there, but it's intentional. We've, it's a fairly narrow range, honestly, uh, to begin with, right? It's, uh, it's, 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 it's basically a you know, a $13.5 billion EBITDA business with a guidance range of plus or minus 3%. So we feel that's fairly tight already. Um, not going to make specific commentary on where in the range. We, we have a range. And I think you put your finger on it. I think the mainline volume sensitivity is uh, is, is is probably obviously the uh, the biggest uh, the biggest moving part there. So we, we've stress tested it, as, as noted. 
It's great. Thank you very much. Shamira Gashani from UBS is online with a question. Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, good to hear everyone is uh, safe and well. Um, really appreciated the the detailed outlook on on the main line that that you tried to to present today, and you know the explanation about rail being impacted first and coming back last definitely makes sense. But you know, trying to navigate these unprecedented environment for North American crude markets. You know, typically, you know, investors um, have looked at transportation differentials to figure out, you know, when the call on crude actually will occur and so forth. But I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about how this could be different um, or, or how you're thinking about it from a modeling perspective. But when the refiners start up and they get closer to full utilization, is there a scenario where the heavier crudes are actually favored by the refiners and there can actually be a bigger pull out of the Western Canadian production than you would typically expect in, in normal circumstances? I'm trying to understand how that impacts or colors your outlook for, for mainline uh, volumes for this year. Well, Schneer, it's, it's Al here, then I'll hand it off to Vern. I'll go first. Um, I think the answer is yes. Um, you know, where where they've got uh, some capacity to move uh, heavy processing up, they'll do that. I think as we referred to, that's where the margins are greatest. And that's where, uh, just given where we are on throughput today, there's probably, a, you know, a good opportunity for them to ramp up and uh, and fully utilize that access to heavy barrels. So I think that's one angle. The other one is, of course, uh, as I said, production uh, is likely to lag here, uh, the demand part of the curve. And so given that we've got, you know, a lot of storage uh, pent up in, in Western Canada, I think we'll be able to utilize as much of that increased demand that refiners want uh, through this period here. So, uh, you know, that's how we see it at, at a high level. But, Vern, you can add if, uh, if you like. Sure. Um, uh, I think the big issue is, with COVID, it's really been a, um, a refinery and transportation fuel demand issue for what crude is required where. So as the economy picks up and as transportation fuels begin to return to normal, uh, you will see refinery demand go up. And you're absolutely right, heavy crude will be the first crude pulled because though that type of crude provides the best uh, refinery margins or crack spreads for each of our refineries. So we'll see uh, the Pad 2 and Pad 3 heavy refiners move up uh, in utilization a lot quicker than you'll see light crude refineries move up in utilization. Perfect. That that makes perfect sense. Um, and then maybe as a, a follow-up question, you know, with the, the Keystone Excel approval um, and so forth, trying to understand if and how it could potentially impact your mainline uh, recontracting process. Um, you know, at, at a high level, um, are, are you able to share with us whether you believe your proposed rates um, are competitive with, with, with the Keystone XL rates moving forward, and so, you know, shippers would continue to support your, your process? Is, is that a fair way to think about it? I'm just any color on that would be helpful. Well, Maybe I'll go first, and then on the rate comparison, uh, Vern, you can address that, I think. Uh, firstly, I would say, Shanur, that we've, I think you're aware, we've always assumed that Excel 
would go forward in our projections. Uh, and I think that was the prudent thing to do. Uh, and our view is that even in that scenario, uh, we still see a lot of demand for access uh, to our system and to be contracted. And it goes back to what we were saying about direct connections and uh, minimal alternatives. And that's the three million barrels a day that we were talking about that is uh, directly connected or as downstream pulls. So the combination of that with our lower tolls and uh, and us accessing the most competitive markets, I think that puts us in very good position. The other part of this, of course, is you know after what was it three or four or five years of lack of egress, I think one thing that uh, that Excel uh, coming on uh, on its schedule and TMX does is it does uh, allow for um, additional production volumes to come on. Obviously, investment has been curtailed, particularly over the last two, three months in the oil sands, just like the Permian and other spots. But I think that could unleash uh, some new volumes coming out of the basin that would certainly uh, you know, further bolster what we're doing on contracting. Uh, so that's the big picture. And then on rates, Vern? Yeah, I would say that we are very competitive to all markets. Uh, we feel like we'll definitely have the lowest toll into the U.S. Midwest and eastern Canada. And, in fact, from both of those markets, there are almost no alternatives but the Enbridge system. And then to the downstream markets and Patoka, Cushing, and the U.S. Gulf Coast, uh, we are very, very competitive. In fact, our U.S. Gulf Coast tolls should be the lowest tolls uh, available. Okay, so it, it, what you're effectively saying is, is that it, it, it wouldn't be an impediment and, and, and you have a very good offering for your, for your shippers. Absolutely. Perfect. Thank you very much, guys. Really appreciate the call today and stay safe. Okay, thank you. Linda, as a Galas from TD Securities is online for a question. Thank you. I appreciate all the um, uh, fulsome update today on, on the main line especially. Um, I realize there's still a lot of uncertainty and a lot of moving factors, but I'm just wondering how the man management and board um, is revisiting um, how you're going to execute on your strategic priorities over the next couple of years. And specifically, I'm wondering if there might be some sort of a shift and how you approach your U.S. Gulf Coast and export strategy. I know that was a focus and an interesting uh, possibility uh, still that, that uh, is unfolding for you. And also, I'm just wondering um, with you know, your, your, your five to six billion of capital capacity for investment annually, I know your priority is to grow organically, but I'm just wondering at what point to the extent that organic uh, growth might dissipate in this uh, environment, uh, whether or not, like what, what factors would need to change and what would need to be in place for Enbridge to consider acquisitions? Okay. It's Al here, Linda. So first of all, uh, great question on the overall strategic uh, priorities that management and the board's thinking about. You know, I think I would break it down into two pieces, Linda. For sure, uh, we're very focused on the near term and, and medium term in terms of protecting the business. So as I said earlier, the cornerstones are in this next uh, uh, rest of the year, let's call it, uh, you know, the safety of the people and reliability of the system, that's critical. Uh, you know, making sure that the balance sheet is strong and at the same time uh, making sure that we continue to move 
our execution program along. So I think it's making sure that we keep resilient is the first priority. But I think at the same time, we also have an eye on making sure that we continue to sustain, sustain the growth in the business. And you mentioned the export strategy. You know, at this point, um, you know, unless you believe that we're not going to return to the basic fundamentals that were driving exports in the first place, which is global demand for energy, and that's stemming from, as you know very well, um, you know, population growth, urbanization, standards of living. I think, uh, you know, we could see a bit of a, uh, a slowdown, let's just say, in, in, in growth. But generally speaking, I think uh, our view is that we're going to get back on track. As to uh, the capital investment you referred to, the five to six billion, uh, again, I think uh, obviously with potentially a slowdown in the economy, uh, you could see uh, overall growth slow down in energy. I think from our point of view, in that environment, if that happens, uh, you know, we're not going to be chasing growth at all costs. If things don't fit, we won't pursue them. But that being said, I actually think we're very well positioned for uh, a downturn here. If you look at the asset base and the opportunity set that comes out of it, uh, and you circle back to the five to six billion per year, you know, it's it's one to two billion for each of our main businesses, which I think is very achievable. On the gas side, uh, again, very uh, you know focused on LNG, we're well positioned there. Uh, expansions of our existing systems, Valley Crossing, Sable Trail. Uh, Bill's got a, you know, a bunch of modernization capital on the shelf there that needs to move forward. Uh, the utility uh, through additions and expansions of the communities is there. Uh, and then, of course, on the liquid side. So I actually think on the organic side, uh, we're pretty well positioned and I don't see a major disruption in that flow. In terms of uh, M&A, I think it's a good question. Um, obviously, we're scouring things all the time. That's what our uh, corporate development people get charged with. But I would say that's pretty low on the list for us. Uh, as you know very well, we, we essentially repositioned and did what we needed to do uh, about three years ago now with the Spectra transaction. So I'd say in terms of capital deployment, uh, it's not very high on the list. We're going to be very disciplined. Uh, in the next three to five years as we have been in the past. Thank you. And just as a follow-up um, with your uh, sale of your interest in your offshore French wind to CPP uh, shows a, a discipline in, in capital allocation and high grading. I'm just wondering, um, you know, if, if there are opportunities to continue to do that, you know, what, what might be possible on that front uh, with potential financial partners um, um, maintaining um, uh, partnership with you or, or, or uh, other ways that you could uh, continue to high grade and, and take advantage of, of strong demand for the types of assets that you hold? Yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, again, it's another thing we're uh, scouring and making sure we're always investigating. Uh, you know, we certainly look at, you know, the three-year plan and, and we, we always evaluate whether we can bring in financial partners, maybe a little bit tougher in this current environment, just given uh, some of the uh, debt markets and so forth that are maybe less applicable for private equity these days. But we'll continue to do that. Uh, this, as you're pointing out, is, was a very good example. Uh, there may be a few more opportunities uh, to do that 
um, throughout the entire business. Uh, we'll we'll keep track and, and see what's out there for us to uh, capitalize on when we see it. Great, thank you. Okay, thanks, Linda. Jeremy Tonnet from J.P. Morgan is online with a question. Hi, good morning. Hi. Um, just wanted to take a step back here and looking at the first quarter, it looked like, you know, operations came in, you know, pretty good, better than, than we were expecting, and appreciate that there's kind of, you know, these headwinds ahead of us, as, as you've talked about in the call. But if I'm just kind of thinking through this on the other side, when we get back to, like, kind of a normalized world and, you know, potentially when line three eventually gets in line and if that gives you to a full year, you know, contribution in 21, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself too much here, but just wondering what do you think the business looks like in that environment and how that compares to, uh, I guess, some of the prior guidance you had put out there, you know, given how well things went in the first quarter. Yeah, I think, Jeremy, I'll start then calling Kanat. I think I'll take you back to, you know, Enbridge Day here, which wasn't that long ago, really. It feels longer. Uh, but, you know, we had a, a three-year plan there that we uh, unveiled, and you're familiar with it. I think we're, we're pretty comfortable that, um, you know, under that three-year scenario, we can still deliver on, on uh, what we thought. You know, I, I'm not sure the first quarter uh, is going to tilt the balance either way on that three-year plan. I think, as you're pointing out, line three is a, is a big part of that because it generates a lot of EBITDA. But I think that's, that's the way we're looking at this uh, good first quarter. We've got uh, some bolstering actions that will help us, uh, uh, you know, stay in the range. I think that's important. Uh, and then from there, it, it, I see more or less a, a progression and execution of that three-year plan that we laid out. So I think we're, we're pretty much on track with what we thought. The only thing I think I'll add, Jeremy, you're very close to this, is in, in Bill's business, uh, I think it's a subtle point, but he, uh, he and his team have been advancing a number of, you know, rate cases on, on the various gas systems, which is, you know, quietly um, bolstering and stepping up our, our return on, on that business, you know, in a kind of a, kind of a boring way. But I think you're right. It's, um, it's, it, it should be, it should be uh, diversified, solid contribution. We had, we had a pretty good Q1, continuing all the trends that, that you've seen. So we'd uh, like it to, uh, return to that world as soon as we can. Actually, that, that's a very good point. And, you know, given it's boring and so forth, as Colin just said, I, I might just ask Bill to just comment a little bit on that because I think the rate cases are a great point. But, you know, the gas guys are working on so many of their other opportunities right now. So maybe, Bill, can you maybe just expand on this? I think it's a good point. Yeah, I think I, think I appreciate the boring comment. Um, you know, this that the business really has has started a turn uh, a little bit towards its its roots, which is a you know a regulated entity, and we've got uh, an awful lot of capital going into the business, and so you see it from the Texas Eastern rate case that that's you know that provides some um, I wouldn't I guess you'd call it a growth opportunity one, and then you know the the business even in this environment, you know Jeremy we're only down you know maybe. 5% on a demand basis, and as you know, it doesn't, doesn't affect us because we're, we're all reservation-based system. And most of our areas, be it Gulf export, uh, whether it's Mexico or LNG, even some of the, the northeast utilities where it's challenging to build anything new, uh, small increments uh, of growth 
um, you know, crop up. So I, I feel as though from protecting that base with recontracting, which you know hasn't been that challenging, to investing in the bones of the system, to then um, you know these these expansion opportunities that we still see even in this environment. I I do feel like yeah, that's fine. We'll be boring and under the radar, but but churn out some some nice growth. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, that, that sounds right. I mean, if Boston didn't prefer Russian LNG, it seems like you'd have some nice opportunities there. But just want to follow <laughs> up on my second question real quick. With uh, with regards to DCP, I, I'm kind of on the other side there. With them, with them retracting uh, the guide here, just wondering, you know, updated thoughts there as far as, you know, portfolio management. Um, you know, is that something that after – you know, write downs here is something to kind of exit at this point, or are they going to need any help or, or any? I, I appreciate it's an extremely small part of your business, but just wanted to get any thoughts there. Yeah, uh, it, it, you, you've got it right there. It's not huge for us, but on the other hand, we, we pay attention to all of our businesses, and you know, we're certainly not happy about uh, taking a distribution uh, reduction there. Uh, you know, I'd say at this moment, um, you know, the, the exit part of your question, I mean, it would be consistent with the fact that we sold the rest of our GMP businesses, but I think, as you will recall, we've got a, a bit of a, a tax basis issue there that makes that more challenging. I would say, though, Jeremy, that like, at this point, um, we're, we're very supportive of management's actions. I mean, they've, they've uh, moved forward pretty quickly on reducing capital. Uh, they're making inroads on the operating costs and certainly on overhead. So, I think that's the that's the plan right now, and we're supportive of that. That's uh, that's helpful. That's it for me. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Jeremy. Ben Sam from BMO is online with a question. Okay. Thanks. Uh, good morning. Um, on the renewables business, um, I'm I'm curious uh, where does that fit in your overall strategy now? Your, your long term. It seems like that business is getting smaller over time and the other segments are, are getting bigger here as well. Is there, you're still bullish on renewables and, and how it fits in your portfolio? Uh, the short answer is yes, Ben. Uh, and reason for that being, you know, I think we've been talking about uh, our view about energy transition, which is obviously going to take uh, a number of decades uh, here moving forward. But we think uh, this is a very good way to, um, you know, focus on some part of our business on, on lower carbon. Uh, it's been uh, a very good business for us. We've built up a very good capability. And I will say we have a, a pretty good inventory of projects in development in Europe. And that's our focus right now. Uh, the fundamentals there are very strong. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, obviously people have a big demand for renewable power in Europe. Uh, but the bigger thing these days I've found is that the supply chain is really well developed. Uh, we've, uh, we've joined this partnership with CPBIB, and I do feel that uh, you know, the fact that we've built up our capability here with them and make us a, a real player and developer in this space. So uh, I think if you're referring to the transaction we were talking about, that was purely um, about boosting the return on assets. And frankly, I like the idea of us developing projects, bringing people in, and then, uh, and then having some promote value in that. I think that's a, a good spot to be in. You've seen other large players in renewable uh, use similar models, and 
um, you know, I think that's a good capital uh, allocation move, and uh, but it does not uh, indicate whatsoever that um, you know we want it to be a smaller part of the business. I think uh, we're very keen on developing and growing it. Okay, that's that's great to hear. Um, and maybe my second question, maybe uh, cleaning up on the mainline sensitivities and unpeeling Q2 a bit on on that variance you put out there at that range, four to six hundred thousand. Uh, can you confirm? Looking at 600,000, is that, it looks like you're feeding in 1.5 million barrels a day. I wanted to check that, and that, I guess that suggests that at June, you're probably looking at a million down on, on mainline volumes. Uh, hey, Hi. Go ahead, Vern. Yeah. Hey, Ben, can you explain your question again? I'm, sorry, I'm having trouble following it. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I, I, I was trying to uh, clarify or, or confirm with, with you guys that you guys are also feeding in that 1.5 million production shut-ins in Canada as you triangulate down to your variance for Q2. And the way I'm thinking about it specifically is you, you got April in the bag, 400,000 to 1 million, and you probably have a good sense of, of May, and then you put out 600,000, so I'm just solving for, for June. Okay, I see what your point is. Um, I think the four to six hundred thousand is in a range for the average on the quarter, and uh, there's no real midpoint for that range. It's designed to be um, something that's possible, and again, that's dependent on whether it's a million to a million and a half in overall Western Canadian. Uh, basin production declines. So at this point uh, in April and May, we're, we're not close to that 1.5 at this point. Okay, and the, but I, I guess you you have in that range you have uh, sensitized down to 1.5. Uh, it's designed to be a range, and our outlook uh, would be within that range. Okay. All right, okay, thanks guys. Okay, thank you. Robert Cadillier from CIBC Capital Markets is online with a question. Hi, good morning, and uh, thank you for the very detailed comments uh, this morning, especially on the main line. Most of my questions have been answered uh, at this point, but maybe just a, a couple of quick clarifications. Um, we have a very similar path on the main line volumes that you've described, uh, but maybe a tick deeper decline. I'm more curious, though, about uh, what you're assuming in the throughput recovery um, that you've outlined on slide 14. Um, I think you've mentioned uh, reopening the border and lifting travel restrictions. Are there any other uh, economic or policy guideposts you're looking to there? I'm thinking uh, maybe is there a refinery utilization recovery or rate you're expecting or a GDP recovery that's baked into your assumptions? Do you want to address that? Sure. I think, Robert, the, the big thing you should be looking at is gasoline demand. And I think gasoline demand right now is down 3 million barrels a day in North America. Uh, that will be the factor which will drive uh, the rate of refinery utilization and then which will derive the rate of um, throughput 
pick up for us. So um, we're already up a million barrels a day in gasoline demand since the lows in early April, and it's trending the right direction. So our expectation is as uh, transportation fuel demand goes up, refinery demand will go up, and then mainline uh, throughputs will go up. I don't think we're uh, looking at anything about opening up borders or anything like that, but it's really uh, driving patterns, I think, will be the biggest um, thing to watch. Right, and in that um, sort of that group of things you're looking at, are you expecting a full recovery um, in, in those metrics to get to your um, your year-end volume outlook? Uh, no, we are not. We're not forecasting a full recovery. Okay, thanks for that. And just uh, lastly, on on line three, um, what I heard from the comments is there. There's a little bit of a mechanical shift in the uh, the capex for 2020, seem, seemingly based on um, the permitting timelines. But I, I'm wondering um, if that also includes the impact of uh, COVID and what that might have on your the, the practical realities that has on uh, construction, or has that been included in your uh, your comments and your shift in uh, capital timing? I think, um, Rob, you know, from a construction point of view, uh, that's, you know, obviously that's not happening today and will happen later on, uh, depending on when we get the permits. I'm not sure we see much of a construction impact. In fact, you know, in most of the projects uh, we're running right now uh, in the field, those are generally working uh, to schedule, obviously, a few uh, more complications in how you work, but I think so. It's not so much the construction. I think really it has more to do with uh, this uh, eight-week or so delay in getting those uh, PUC orders. I suppose there could be some further COVID-related uh, issues through permitting, but we haven't really seen much of that yet. So I mean, hopefully I'm answering your question, but that's the big picture. Yeah, that that, that was it. I just wondered about. Um any construction you know, changes to to the construction activity that might result, but you answered the question. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Matthew Taylor from Tudor Picking Holt Company is online with a question. Hey, thanks for taking my question here. Um, on slide 14, you highlighted the recovery in volume tied to the mound outlook, and I think you uh, have done a good job addressing that. I'm just wondering on the supply side, if you're anticipating barrels that were previously on the system to be, you know, structurally shut in, or, or it would just be helpful to hear comments on how you're thinking about supply ramping back up. Okay, uh, Matthew, I think really our system and the demand in the near term is going to be refinery uh, demand pull driven because uh, prior to uh, uh, the COVID situation, we were 40 or 50 percent apportioned uh, upstream. So um, we don't expect um, the supply situation to impact uh, volumes once demand picks up again. Uh, I think it'd be fair to say we would likely see um, storage in Western Canada uh, to be drawn upon, and then after that is drawn down a bit, 
then we would likely see a supply, uh, sorry, a price increase in Western Canada, and that would then uh, result in more supply being brought back. That's great. Thanks, Vern. And then maybe just one last one here for Bill. On natural gas, if, um, you know, prices improve or potentially move to 3 bucks at Henry Hub in, in 2021, I'm just curious your expectation for customers. Do you think higher pricing will be for them to grow or for the delivery? Either way, I mean, it seems constructive for your business, either more gas flows or healthy customers. Just wondering what type of opportunities you're, you're kind of foreseeing in the future in, in a better pricing environment. Yeah, I, I think, Matthew, it'll be interesting to see uh, the LNG dynamics, for one, for sure. Um, you know, we, I think we were already seeing um, the fundamentals for, you know, the projects that, are, that we're looking at for 2024 and beyond. They're pretty darn good, and um, it's, it, it doesn't feel likely to me that that, that type of a, of a, of a price change would really impact that, you know, in, in an odd way, sort of shifting gears a bit, the, you know, the, a slightly higher gas price strengthens a number of the producers that are, you know, that are contract holders on our system, especially in Appalachia. So, which is, you know, we have a, a, a fair presence in Appalachia. So it, you know, in an odd way, it's, it's, it's kind of good from a, from a contracting perspective. And yet, you know, we're not seeing the seven, eight, nine, ten dollar prices that might, you know, might scare away demand. So I, I, I think the outlook is pretty good when you're between, you know, you know, the high ones and and three dollars. Great, thanks for the color there, Bill. Andrew Tusky from Credit Suisse is online with a question. Thank you. Good morning. I, I think the question is probably for Colin. And historically, you've always maintained ample liquidity, and it's no different this time around. You bolstered your liquidity during the quarter. Uh, so I guess just the confirmation on where your liquidity is right now, and then would you be able to, if the market's completely froze, uh, access the Bank of Canada's commercial paper purchase program plan? Yeah, yeah. thanks, Andrew. Uh, so we're at, we're at $14 billion. That That's a end of April number effectively, or last week number, but current basically as of today. That, that's a big number, and it uh, translates calendar-wise into uh, a funding access efficiency through the end of 21, which is basically by design. It's a conservative uh, outlook that, uh, you know, potentially debt capital markets could be could be frozen until then. They're not. They're 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 basically back open, uh, which is good. We'll see how how that progresses. Um, and I can confirm that that uh, Enbridge, uh, as as a strong rated commercial paper issuer, could uh, could access the Canadian program. Uh, I don't think we have really to date. We are issuing commercial paper. Uh, the market is thawing. So uh, I've been I guess pleasantly surprised by the collective actions of of um, central banks, right? And uh, so far, it looks like, uh, you know, debt capital markets are, are thawing and, and reopening in a, in a constructive manner. So I feel pretty good about uh, funding our, our plan through through next year. Andrew? Uh, that, that's great. appreciate the color. And then maybe one more narrow question, just with the write-down, the non-cash write-down on the DCP position. 
how do you think about the tax attributes and, and the benefits you have in the future, either against income or capital gains? How do you think about using that? Uh, can you clarify that a little bit, are you, are you specifically on DCP or, or more broadly? Just, just on the, the DCP position itself, is there any tax benefit that you anticipate rolling off that at this point in time? Uh, yeah, no, the answer to that is, is not really, uh, Andrew. Um, I think I think it, we, st we still have a, a generally a, a pretty low basis in our in our DCP tax uh, position, so that that's unchanged by the uh, by the the impairment down to market value. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Sin from Bank of America is online with a question. Good morning. Uh, thanks for uh, the interesting details on slide 12 detailing PAD 2 and PAD 3 dynamic over the near term, PAD 3 lacking storage, while PAD 3 has storage and export capacity. My question is um, on, on storage, thoughts on what you're seeing on, in the storage market, both at the push, Cushing or, or PAD 3 or WCSB, how close are we to the tank top? Um, that's number one. Yeah, I'll go first. Um, you know, I think probably a couple weeks ago, maybe three, we would have been thinking that, you know, May looked like we could see getting pretty close uh, to tank tops. I think you saw the, uh, the inventories uh, come out yesterday. You know, there was a couple good numbers in there. So, uh, you know, I think our view right now is we probably don't see us getting close to that in May, uh, probably think of it as a shift out into June. And uh, a few reasons for that, one I mentioned, but um, you know we are starting to see a few more barrels headed out of Cushing uh, down into the Gulf, uh, and part of that is Strategic Petroleum Reserve has helped that out. So generally, think of it, we think of it as a, as a, as a shift uh, about a month out in terms of criticality, let's put it that way, uh, to, uh, to tank tops. Vern, uh, I don't know if you want to comment on Western Canada or our own um, uh, operational tankage at all. Sure. Um, I think Western Canada is not expected to fill in May as well. Uh, Western Canada, I think if you read the published stats, will be in that 75% uh, full level by the end of May. Um, for us, I think, like many uh, storage operators, we, we have, as Al mentioned previously, operational storage and merchant storage. We've been actively looking to add storage to our system over the last month or so. In fact, we figured out ways to add 3 million barrels of incremental storage to our customers. Uh, really, that comes from uh, deferring some API tank inspections and working with the regulator to do that. Changing our operating parameters for how we fill um, specific storage sites. So that gives us uh, more flexibility for our customers. And then finally, we're in the process of getting uh, a piece of deactivated pipe associated with legacy line three. Uh, approved by the CER where we could put that into service as uh, temporary storage for our customers as well. So we, like other companies, are uh, actively looking at our assets to see what we can do to help customers out with more storage. 
Thanks for the color. And, and from a broader industry perspective, as we emerge from this pandemic situation and assuming a, a lower demand curve, how do you see North America pipeline utilization evolving, Al? And uh, does it essentially price out crude by rail for the medium term, and is it really a call on the export market at some point? Do you want to take that, burn or? Sure. Yeah, I think for out of Western Canada, for sure, crude by rail will be the first to be hit. And given that crude by rail was moving at about 400,000 barrels a day prior to um, the demand destruction with COVID, uh, we expect that pipeline utilization will come back first out of Western Canada, for sure. And then we expect our heavy system to be uh, very full, but when uh, economic activity uh, recovers, just because, as we mentioned before, heavy crude will provide the best margins for refiners across North America. I think you are right. Uh, the, the lighter crudes will uh, be will have a longer ramp up to come back, and they're at more risk of uh, not being entirely full, and that has knock-on effects to the export market just because the uh, excess light crude out of North America has been uh, exported and, and then to some degree is continuing to be exported as well. Thank you. Michael Lepides from Goldman Sachs is online with a question. Thank you for doing this extended call and, and obviously for taking my question. Glad you're here today. I'm looking at slide 10. And I'm looking at kind of some of the other pipes outside of the main line. I'm just curious, refer to them, and I'm thinking pipes like Gapple or Gray Oak and, you know, you know, Express and Platt. When you say they're take or pay, are you saying they're 80 to 90% take or pay and just the 10% walk up is, is open? Or are they partially take or pay significantly less than 90% and the rest is more volumetric? Uh, I don't know, Vern, do you want to take that? Yeah, I think it's the latter where it's, uh, the, sorry, it's 80 or 90% take or pay and uh, about 10 to 20% is spot or walk up. So those pipelines uh, will see a, a minor impact on their revenues, but nothing significant. And, and that, Michael, just to, just as a reminder, uh, that spot capacity, the 10%, for example, that's that's usually by regulatory requirement, so we don't have a lot of choice in that one. No, under, understood. That's the walk-up. And, and Vern, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing volume-wise, um, meaning, you know, have you seen dramatic volume changes on Gapple or on Gray Oak? You know, Gray Oak's not been operational that long, but just in the last month or so, kind of, what you guys have seen in the near term? Well, I think uh, for Gray Oak, obviously, that's a new pipeline. And, it, again, it's um, predominantly take or pay. Uh, there is obviously probably a small decline in the spot volume versus our expectations, similarly on Dapple, where the walk-up volumes will be lower. Got it. And then last, and this may be a Colin question, can you, can you just clarify, what is growth CapEx for 2020? 
Yeah, Michael, thanks. So at Enbridge Day, we uh, the slide had uh, total CapEx of uh, $6.5 billion, of which $1 billion was maintenance. So 5.5 was our growth CapEx spend projection for this year. So that's now down to 4.5. So 4.5 plus 1. Got it. And the billion that you're deferring, can you put that, and you may have done this already, and apologies if I misunderstood it, can you put that billion into buckets, meaning what percent is for X business or X type of asset, what percent is for Y? Yeah, I'll give you a little bit more there. So I think we talked about probably the biggest piece, which is about $300 million of the billion, which was the mechanical, just you know, best case time shift for Line 3 U.S., uh, the rest of it is, is uh, you know, 50 million here, 100 million there. Um, you know, the, the next biggest is, uh, is also probably in the permitting bucket would, would be uh, around Penn East and some permit delays we've seen there. That's probably 200 million. So that's about half the, the billion together there, line three in Penn East. And then the rest are smaller, like I mentioned, a, a little bit at the utility, call it 100 or a little bit more. Um, a little bit of, uh, you know, compressor mo modernization in Bill's business, maybe another 100, 150 there. And then the rest is, is pretty small. So it's um, uh, probably about half in the permitting bucket and maybe half in the, call it, COVID construction delay bucket. So Got it. And then, no, that's super helpful, Colin. And, and uh, I hope you don't mind, I'll cheat. I'd like to ask one more, and it's a Bill question, which is, Bill, you know, after getting the successful TEDCO rate case, do you have other pipelines you're looking at where you see a significant filing ahead because of kind of under-earning your expectations at that pipe in the U.S.? Uh, well, I wouldn't want to front-run any of them, uh, Michael, but I would say we're we're very close to a – to a settlement on Algonquin, um, and we we would expect that to be a, a positive impact. It's just too you know too early to say what you know what that could possibly be. We also have filings uh, or settlements that would like to um, uh, pursue over the over the next three months on East Tennessee Alliance Maritimes Northeast. You got to keep in mind these are all pale in size and scope by comparison to Texas Eastern. So while, while we may see positives, um, you know, the, the Texas Eastern rate case and getting that behind us was, you know, was by far the largest. I, I hope that's a little enough color. I, I, maybe I'll add one more thing in that all of these pipeline systems, except for, for the very newest ones, um, you know, the, the integrity work and the modernization, you know, emissions work that we're doing is, you know, it's 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 significant. So I said boring earlier, but it's a, it's a very important part of our of our growth story. Got it. Thank you, Bill. Thank you all for taking my questions. Thanks, Michael. We have reached our time limit and are not able to take any further questions at this time. I will now turn the call over to Jonathan Morgan for final remarks. Thank you, Patrice. And thank you to everyone for your time uh, and joining us this morning. We appreciate your ongoing interest in Enbridge. As always, our investor relations team is available to address any additional questions you may have. And so once again, thank you, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We appreciate your participation. This concludes today's conference. You may now disconnect. 
Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.